0: Let's now turn to the book of Jonah, chapters uh, 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. For the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us, so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you for I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Let's also turn... In our book of uh, Forms and Prayers to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day thirty four. Actually we'll begin reading at question ninety three on page two forty two, having read God's Law this morning. How are these commandments divided into two tables? The first has four commandments, teaching us how we should live in relation to God. The second has six commandments, teaching us what we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts, in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this evening we begin our Our study of the law of God, Uh, as is explained in the Heidelberg Catechism, of course, beginning with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, before me, the true God, the living God, the triune God. And it's important for us to appreciate that this first commandment is really the foundational commandment from which all the others flow. Uh, the next three commandments uh, explain, they fill out what it means to honor and serve God in our direct relationship to him. And then the second uh, table of the law, the next six commandments, are about what it means to honor and serve God in our relationships uh, to others. And without obeying the first commandment, there really is nothing but a kind of practical atheism. Whatever people might profess. If they do not worship the living and true God, for all practical purposes, they act and think like atheists. Because if they reject the worship of the one and only true God, what is left for them? There are no other gods truly besides the true and living God. And if they define their view of God in a way that's contrary to God's self-revelation. They worship an idol of their own imagination. And practically speaking, them then they act and think as if there were no God because they replace the true God with an idol of their own brains. That also means that there is no true respect for others. In other words, those that do not worship the true God, they not only fail to honor him, but they fail to respect and honor their neighbor as they truly are, as made in the image of God, who are to be loved for God's sake. And whatever respect and honor then they might uh, show to others is uh, misguided in terms of its motivation. And God is omitted from that respect. And God is dishonored then in people's relationship to others. Uh, so true religion, true uh, spirituality, true faith begins here. And only from here does it, does it really proceed upon a proper foundation. We are to worship God, the true God, and Him alone. And that is the basis for every other commandment. It's the first and the great commandment. To love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To have no other God besides the Lord, your God, is the language of the commandment. And that means that we must know God. And uh, we must know him truly. And that involves more than proper definitions. That's why I, I put it this way. We must know God devoutly. There's a kind of knowledge of God that is inescapable. Uh, The first chapters of Romans make that very clear because God reveals himself uh, to everyone by his creation that proclaims his deity, his power. And that revelation uh, confronts every person with the reality of God. They know God after a manner But because of our depravity, our natural response to that revelation is to suppress it and rather to worship this uh, true God who reveals himself in the world that he made. People corrupt that knowledge and they make for themselves images or idols with their hands or with their own minds denying that revelation. But they are without excuse. Because they do not like to retain the knowledge of God in their thoughts, and they turn to idols. But their very conscience conscious the, the reality of uh, the work of God's law written on their own hearts mean that means that they cannot escape the moral absolutes that belong to the world that God has created. And they can't escape a sense of right and wrong. And however twisted and perverted that sense of right and wrong becomes, they still make judgments. They judge others very often for the very things that they themselves do in a different form. And these things provide inescapable testimony to the reality of God that confronts all people. But by the word of God, in addition to creation and the testimony of conscience, uh, the knowledge of God is clarified, it's, it's directed, it is increased. The great calling, the great privilege of parents is to teach their children about God and to seek to nurture them from their earliest days this knowledge of God. And some of the first things that children uh, must learn about God is his greatness as the one who made them and the one who made all things. The one who provides for every good thing that they enjoy. A God who is loving and yes, a God who is mysterious so that our children learn to revere God and to stand in awe of him. We should cultivate a reverence for God. Perhaps there's nothing more important than that children should have a sense of awe at the wonder and the mystery of God. Take them outside on a starry night. Show them the stars and speak of God the creator who called all these stars into existence by his word and who counts them and calls them by name. And we can just see a small part of this vast universe that God has made. He is so great in power. What a privilege it is to seek to cultivate that, that sense of reverence. That's our aim. That should be our aim from the start in terms of teaching our children about God. A devout knowledge of God. A knowledge that involves Uh, reverence, and sincere worship. Because a true knowledge of God is never just theoretical. In other words, it's not just uh, speculative. It's not a matter of proper definitions or catechism answers, as important as they are. Such a knowledge, if if that's as far as it goes, is in a way worse than useless and empty. Because it would then involve a kind of practical atheism in which people who might have a speculative knowledge of God, yet act and they think as if God were not everywhere present, as if God did not know and see them at all times and places. The first commandment requires that we have no other gods before me, the Lord says, before my face, as in my presence. Well, where is God present? God is present everywhere. In fact, that little phrase, in the sight of the Lord, is found over a hundred times in the Bible. Sin is always committed in the sight of the Lord. Good things are done in the sight of the Lord. Practical atheism thinks or acts as if God were not everywhere present, as if God were not near. Practical atheism Acts and thinks as if God is not the, the the sovereign provider and and ruler over all things. Well, He might be involved in some big things, but He's not involved in the little things. Or a practical atheism doesn't internalize the reality of God as a God of justice, who is righteous in all that He does. And such a God who is not everywhere present and is not known and feared as such, such a God who is not in control of this world and everything that happens, such a God who is not righteous and just, is just an idol of man's brains. It's not the true God. Contrast that even with what these mariners uh, learned and were confronted with concerning the living and true God. They were in a crisis in this boat, on the Mediterranean, in the midst of a sea that threatened to destroy their boat and to drown them all. And they were afraid. You know, it's often a crisis that puts our gods to the test. The kinds of things that we put our trust in, other than God, they will fail us in a time of need. And it appears that these false gods that they worshipped, they didn't deliver for them in their time of need. They cried out to them, and the storm uh, continued, and it got worse and worse until, in their superstition, we might say, they tried to get to the root cause of it. And they cast lots. They pointed to Jonah. Who are you? Where are you from? What is your occupation? And Jonah spoke those solemn words. I am a Hebrew and I serve the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. The creator God. He's not just the God of the sea. He's not some God who controls and rules the waves. No, he's the God who made the sea. And he rules and controls them as the sovereign Lord and creator of the sea and of the dry land. He's the God of heaven. He is a God who is unlimited in his presence and in his power. He's a God you can't get away from. That's what Jonah tried to do. He left the land of Palestine. He left, he left the land of Israel, but he couldn't get away from the God of Israel. God was tracking him. And these men confronted the God who is the creator, who is the sovereign ruler. He rules the wind and the waves and the lot. He determined that whatever superstitious activity they were involved in in casting the lot, God used it to point out his rebellious prophet, his disobedient prophet. They were confronted with a God who is just. is after that disobedient servant who is on the run. Try to imagine how that might and must have affected their own consciences. This great God, the creator, who rules the, the waves and the wind, he is creating this storm because this man disobeyed him. This God sent him on a mission and he runs away. And what does God do? He sends a storm. You'd think that'd get them thinking about this God and about their own sins and how God might treat them for not honoring Him, not worshiping Him at all. But they were confronted with a God of justice and whose justice on this occasion would only be satisfied if this disobedient prophet were thrown into the sea to drown, so it appears. They didn't want to do it. They felt they had no other choice. And so they experienced deliverance through justice. God is just. And he revealed a way to deliver them in the exercise of judgment. There's something there, isn't there? We're taught here about the way we're delivered from God's judgment through justice. Through one who suffers the judgment of God in our behalf not because he's a disobedient prophet, but he's a faithful and obedient servant of God who is obedient unto death, who never ran away from any command that he received from his Father. And that that we're delivered and we worship this great God, this omniscient, omnipresent God, this ruler of everything who is just and merciful. To know God, to know Him devoutly, to revere Him, to fear Him. That's, that's, that's number one. That's, that's first. And to honor Him then, to honor Him supremely, to worship Him. The first commandment means putting God first, putting God first in our heart, that we love Him as He is commanded. You see how that, uh, that is emphasized in answer ninety four that I love and fear and honor him with all my heart, yes, that's the language of Deuteronomy, very familiar summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your with all your strength, that I trust in him with all my heart. that's also the language uh, that is used, or trust in him alone. That's first. And when we say first, we don't simply mean first in order and then move on to other things. It doesn't mean first in the sense that, well, there is some percentage of our devotion in life that belongs to God. Maybe the largest percentage, and we, we give that to him first, and then we can serve mammon with the rest. No, that's not what is meant by first. Rather, what is meant by first is that we honor God in such a way that it affects everything else, that the honor and fear of God becomes the lens, so to speak, by which we view the world, by which we view our work, by which we view our relationships, by which we view everything in relation to him and his will. It means letting nothing or no one take God's place. You hear that in the the summary at the end of answer 94. In short, or briefly, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. That means putting God's will and God's word first. You know, the references, the scripture references under under this statement, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. There's a little number 12, and it points us down to Matthew 5 and Matthew 10. Matthew 5, there the the, the verses uh, cited say this, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And then Matthew 10, verse verse, uh, 37, 38. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now the fact that the Heidelberg Catechism quotes these words of Jesus with respect to allegiance to himself involves a very powerful uh theological point, doesn't it? And that is that the allegiance, the obedience, the love, the devotion that... T- And the consecration that we owe to God is the same that we owe to his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. From these passages, we're given to understand that our job, our relationships, our habits, if they lead to sin in the sense of compromise, in our allegiance to God, something's got to go. Something has to change. Because whatever it is, it has become a false god in some way. It's ruling our heart. And it will enslave us. And it will destroy us. Our God is whatever we treat as our highest good. Put it this way. Our God is whatever we might say, I can't live without it. I could never part with it. I can't be happy without it. If we use such language or if we think such thoughts about anyone or anything other than God, guess what? Idolatry. We're putting a creature in the place of God. We're trying to find our fullness, our highest happiness or good in something or someone who is not God. And you notice the way Jesus, uh, presents these things. It's, it's not as if he's presenting, uh, something optional. In other words, if you really want to be a devoted Christian, here's the next level. It's not like, well, this is the higher life. This is, this is what you have to do if you want Jesus, not only as your Savior, but as your Lord. Well, then you've got to be willing to part with, uh, all those things that we would be, uh, in, in conflict with your allegiance. And then you'll really be saintly. Oh, you'll get to heaven otherwise, but if you really want to be, uh, devoted, this is, this is the standard. No, that's not how Jesus puts it. It's necessary for true discipleship. It's necessary to enter into life, right? Isn't that what he says? It's better for you to enter into life maimed. In other words, uh, so suffering the scars, if you will, of self-denial. Conversion is really turning from the creature to God. It's turning from every other trust, every other confidence that our deceitful hearts would place, would put in place of the Lord and turning away from the creature to worship the creator, right? That's how Romans one describes idolatry. It's to serve and worship the creature, a created thing rather than the creator. So we must know God devoutly and honor him supremely and to serve him only. You know that the Bible distinguishes worship and service. You hear it in the second commandment. You shall not bow down to them, that's worship, nor serve them. You shall worship the Lord your God, Jesus said to Satan when he was tempted to bow down to him just for a moment in order to receive all the kingdoms of the earth, in order to be exalted to that position of power that God had ordained for him the hard way. And Satan was proposing a shortcut. And Jesus' response was, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. It's not the same, it's not just different ways of saying the same thing. They both involve allegiance to God alone, but there is a distinction. The word worship really means to bow down. The worship of God involves, yes, what we're doing here in God's special presence, praying, hearing His word, calling upon Him, offering of our gifts together as His people. That's worship. But serving him, that has to do with what you're going to do tomorrow. We're to worship God and we're to work for him. You're to work for him in your home, in your job. For him, not for your boss, not for your spouse, not for your children, not for your mortgage, not for your retirement. Now, they are all related. And our service of God takes different forms But there are so many manifestations in which we are to live before the face of God, serving him and our relationship with him. And none of these things must be put in the place of God or they become idols to us. And that means that we must be willing to ask ourselves why. Sometimes what? What am I doing? What am I aiming for? Why? Why am I pursuing this career? Why do I want to go to this school? Why do I want children? Why do I want to marry? Why do I work so many hours? What are my goals and plans for the next 10 years? Well, there might be a lot of uh, specific answers to those questions, but we may not ask those questions without asking another question, and that is, what place does God have in the way I answer them? What place does the priorities of seeking his kingdom, first of all, have? How do they relate? Yes, they relate to things like school choices and career aspirations and relationships. It's not always so clean and easy. We don't get signs you know, falling from heaven giving us details, but we must be willing to ask. And we, we, we must be willing to listen to the answer. We must be willing to commit these things to God and to wait upon Him and make decisions prayerfully listening to good counsel, wanting to do what God wants us to do. You know, sometimes that's probably the most important test. You may not know. You may have all kinds of questions. But can you go before the Lord and say, Lord, I really do want to do what you want me to do. Whatever it is. You know, brothers and sisters, that is that is a, a, a pathway to real peace. If we can bring ourselves to that mind. That may be a struggle, but that's a very important outlook and way of thinking about about big questions that we might face. Do we dare to come before God and say, yes, Lord, I do want to do what you want me to do. Lead me and teach me. And I'll trust in you. Again, without, without uh, uh, signs from heaven in terms of the specifics. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. (laughs) Commit yourself to the Lord. Put it in His hands. That's serving Him, right? That's acknowledging Him to be our master and our guide. Serving God means denying worldly values. I came across what seems to me the most shocking verse in the Bible, at least that's the way it sounded to me a couple days ago when I read it. That might change as I, as I keep reading other verses and, and struck with just how profound, how radical the Word of God is. Well listen to this verse from uh, the words of our Lord Jesus in, in Luke chapter 16. He says, What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination. In the sight of God. It's like a categorical judgment. Whatever it is. Whatever is highly esteemed among men. Well, it's not just inferior. It doesn't just kind of fall short of the standard. It's an abomination in the sight of God. It's offensive to him. It's repulsive to his holiness. What does that mean? Isn't the Lord here teaching us how hateful idolatry is in his sight? Isn't he teaching us how to make judgments about what the the world values most highly? What it considers most worthy? The kinds of things they live for and expend their energy on? As if all important? What is it? It really doesn't matter. It takes so many different forms. So many different, so many varied expressions of idolatry. So many different ways in which man created in the image of God to know Him, to love Him, and to worship Him. They go and pursue their own interest, heedless of God's existence and his claim upon their lives. You know, in the context here, it involves self-righteousness and covetousness. Because Jesus said this in response uh, to the Pharisees, who had heard Jesus teaching about the exclusive demands of God upon their lives. He just had said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. And now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. And we know from the inspired commentary what was at the root of it. They resented his exposure of their covetousness. They love money. With all their religiosity. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Their covetousness is idolatry, right? That's how the, that's how the word of God defines covetousness. Is to pursue other gods besides the living and true. That's what they were doing. It involved their pursuit of money. Covetousness takes different forms. And it involved a kind of self-justification, self-righteousness. And Jesus exposes it as abominable in the sight of God. Serve God only. And trust God exclusively. Now, that's highlighted twice in this Lord's Day. In answer 94, that I rightly know the one, only true God, trust him alone. And then answer 95 really zooms in and zeroes in on this idea. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts, in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. Trust in God. Isn't it fitting that the first, most fundamental characteristic of our relationship to God should be one of trust? Doesn't that make perfect sense? He's the one who made us. He is the one who provides for everything that we need. Shouldn't that be the instinctive automatic, wholehearted relationship to this God. As creatures, we derive our existence from him, our life from him, from every moment, every breath we take, every provision, all knowledge, all, every blessing, every ability that we have. And to trust in God for these things, it honors him for who he is as good. To to trust in him respects his character as one who is trustworthy, who's not tricking us, who doesn't have ulterior motives that are somehow evil in his gifts. Couldn't it be said that the first temptation and the entrance of sin involved distrust? That Satan came along and insinuated the idea that God actually does have ulterior motives. He's kind of jealous. He wants to keep you in your place. He knows that if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God's. He's withholding something from you that you really, you deserve, that you really ought to have. And so this distrust continues in our depraved nature. Can God provide a table in the wilderness? That's what Israel said after God had delivered them from Egypt. By destroying all the gods of Egypt, by demonstrating his supremacy, by feeding them miraculously. Can God provide a table in the wilderness? That that was an expression of doubt and disbelief in the power and the goodness of God. It was distrust. You know what the greatest sin is of those who hear the gospel? It's unbelief. A failure to believe in this savior that God provides in his love for sinners. A failure to believe that what he did is sufficient for my everlasting redemption. A failure to entrust myself to him implicitly and believe that he will never fail. Believe that he He is my righteousness. His blood uh, makes perfect atonement for all my sin. Unbelief is a terrible sin. Involve the kind of idolatry that we exalt our own brains, our own abilities above God and his provision for our needs. To honor God means that we must believe the gospel. To do otherwise, in effect, is to call God a liar, to distrust his truth, his goodness, his mercy. No one or nothing else is worthy of our trust. Nothing can replace God. And nothing has a place besides God. You know, the the catechism makes that distinction. It's a biblical distinction, by the way. Idolatry imagines a God besides God. Other than God. And what does the Lord say? I am the the first and the last besides me. There is no God. They don't exist. And so to imagine another God besides God, other than God, is idolatry. Nothing can replace God. Nothing has a place beside God. You see, idolatry imagines a God besides God, but idolatry also puts our imagined God beside God. Now there's a difference. Our catechism really kind of distinguishes it when it says idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of, it's like besides God, or alongside of the only true God. There's the more overt idolatry that basically rejects God as God and follows a false God. And there's the more subtle form of idolatry that wants to worship God, but right alongside with God, there are other idols that we worship. And actually, sometimes they become what we really worship. Oh, we trust God and money. We trust God's word and secular psychology. And we could go on and on. But trusting anyone or anything beside God involves idolatry. And idolatry, the tendency of idolatry is to lead to death. So much could be said about Jonah's prayer. But I call attention to the end of that prayer where he says, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Everyone needs mercy. Everyone is needy, whether they realize it or not. Everyone faces hardship. There is real misery in the world that's inescapable. We all get our dose of it, so to speak. There is real need, and there is mercy to be found in God. There is mercy to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom God comes so near. God revealed his presence to Israel, yes, in a symbolic way, in the temple. In that Holy of Holies where there was the Ark of the Covenant. And God at times displayed uh, his presence in visible ways through smoke and fire. But these were figurative manifestations of the presence of God. But the reality came. God with us. God manifested in the flesh. Emmanuel. God came so close to us as to be one with us in order to save us in our misery and to reveal God's saving love and mercy by what he accomplished for us. And God remains with us, not only uh, among us as he was in Christ, walking among his disciples, in in a rather limited way, geographically, locally, God has given his spirit the spirit of his son to dwell in our hearts by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Christ so near to us, so close to us. In him we have mercy. And to turn from this provision and this mercy is to forsake mercy. The only mercy that will really meet our needs that will address the depths of our misery It's in Christ. What an awful thing to forsake our own misery or our own mercy. What an awful thing to, to turn to idols that just cannot deliver. And so we worship. We worship God, the living and true God. We put our trust in him. We want to honor him. We want to show allegiance to him. Not ourselves, not money not the state, right? The state is the God that so many of our day worship and serve. But we believe in God, that he is, he is the true God. He's the rewarder of all those who diligently seek him. In contrast to those who forsake their mercy, Jonah says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving for God's deliverance and grace. I will pay what I have vowed. I will be loyal to you, O Lord. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. Amen.